Hi, everybody. I'm Martin Bandike. I'm the Morning Drive host on Ann Arbor's 1071. And welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Our podcast for January 2022 is an interview with Eddie Muller. Eddie Muller, the host of Turner Classic Movies, Noir Alley. Eddie has just published a revised and expanded edition of his book, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir. It originally came out back in the late 1990s, and this revised and expanded edition of Eddie Muller's Dark City is a film noir lover's Bible taking you on a tour of the urban landscape of the grim and gritty genre in a definitive, highly illustrated volume. Dark City expands with new chapters and a fresh collection of restored photos that illustrate the mythic landscape of the imagination. Eddie Muller, host of TCM's Noir Alley, takes us on a spellbinding trip through treacherous terrain. Hollywood in the post-World War II years where art, politics, scandal, style, and brilliant craftsmanship produced a new approach to movie making. I began my interview with Eddie Muller by asking him why now was the right time to do this revised and expanded edition of his book, Dark City. It's something I had wanted to do for many years. I'm, I, I knew that it needed to be done because um, once I created the Film Noir Foundation and started into film restoration and preservation, I was finding so many more movies that were not included in the original edition of the book that I said, I have to redo this someday. Uh, It took a while to get the rights to revert back to me from the original publisher. And then um, it became the right time, honestly, because of COVID. (laughs) Because I was, uh, Hmm. you know, in lockdown, really shooting the television show from my, my studio at home. And, uh, and I just had the time to do it. So I'm glad it finally got done. When did the book originally come out? How long ago? I think it was 1998. It was either 97 or 98. As I like to say, it was in the last century. In the, in, the last, in the last century, it's it's fascinating. At the, at the very end of the book, the, the you talk about uh, how important th- this book was, just in terms of moving your career forward as you know as the czar of noir. And we probably would not be seeing you on TCM with without this book, which which you know did not sell zillions of copies, but it, it was really really important for you personally and professionally how how so uh that is absolutely correct it it opened doors that was the the Mm. key thing it wasn't that it sold a million copies or anything but the book found its way to people who appreciated it and and then those doors opened the the key thing was um there were several revival cinemas that were looking for programming. And when they discovered the book, they invited me to program film festivals. The one in in Los Angeles at the American Cinematheque, uh, they were reopening the Egyptian theater right on Hollywood Boulevard and asked if if we could do a festival together based on the book. And what was so wonderful about that experience is that many of the people who made the movies were still around at that point. And so we were able to show 
uh, you know, Andre de Toth movies with Andre there in person. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get a number of the actresses who were in the films to come out and talk about their experiences. So that really was like, a, I did the book and, and, you know, I'll level with you, Martin. It, it takes a little bit of chutzpah at that point to, cause I was no, I'm not a film professor. I'm not a, you know, I'm just a guy who's very enthusiastic about movies yeah. who whose training was as a journalist, not as an academic or anything like that. And so that was my approach to these films. And so um, that it was accepted and I was able to continue learning about the films. I never treated it like the first book made me the czar of noir, made me the expert. Mm -hmm. It was like, this is great because it's opening doors and now I'm getting to meet people and learn more. And so I always felt like that um, this was a long evolving process. So I feel that the new edition is sort of the culmination of all of that. And, and even though a lot of the material is the same as the first edition, a lot of it is not. A lot of it has been revised. And as I say, ex expanded new films are included. I, I have different opinions about a couple of the movies that I write about uh, now but anyway, that, that was the key, was uh, getting into film programming, uh, learning how to present a movie live in front of an audience. That, that paid off in the long run. <laughs> mm -hmm. sure did. Um, and, and then also asking for movies and realizing that they had disappeared. And that led me to use the profits that I was making from these festivals to start a foundation that, that finds and restores films. So, so that was why that, that that book accomplished all of that for me. So that's why it was so important. And that's a lot. That's a lot. How how many films have you been responsible for restoring so far? And is there is there like a like a some films on your holy grail list that you 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 still are searching for at this point? Well, the interesting thing is the holy grail list. We we've checked off a few of those. Mm. Too late for tears was one of those movies. Uh, Woman on the Run was one of those movies. Uh, the Man Who Cheated Himself was one of those films. Mm. But um, what I've learned now uh, is the film that I'm after, my Holy Grail film, I don't even know what it is yet. Because, <laughs> because I'm learning, I don't know everything. And so I've started to restore films from Argentina uh, mm. recently, and they're just magnificent movies that I knew nothing about. But because of the respect that I've earned over the years, uh, I'm able to connect with people around the world who who know who I am when when I email them or call them or something, and and they'll say, "Hey, have you ever heard of this movie that was made, you know, in Brazil in 1957 or something?" It's, I think it's a film noir. I'm going to send you a link, and then and then I learn about a new film, and then it's like this film is great. How do we restore it? How do we get, how do we bring this back into circulation? You know, so um, we've just accomplished that recently with a couple of Argentine films uh, that my good buddy, Fernando Pena, who I met years ago in Buenos Aires, I, I'm showing these to you, but uh, The Bitter Stems and uh, The Beast Must Die were two films virtually unknown outside of Argentina. Wow. And they've just come out on Blu-ray. And I, I last night, just before I went to bed, I read a wonderful review online uh, on the website Pop Matters, where the the writer was just saying, you know, this is 
this is the greatest thing ever, you know, discovering 65 year old movies that you've never heard of. And, and let's go, let's get more. <laughs> so that, that's, that is very gratifying. Having been a film fan for, for decades, I'm still it just weekly shocked, stunned, surprised that what you present and, and things that I've never heard of before that, that, that are really, you know, in the scheme of things for, for someone like you are very well-known films, but things like Johnny Eager, I never, you showed that and it's like, okay, what I, this is, it's going to be pretty good. And Van Heflin's performance, yeah. as I looked at my wife, like, this is one of the greatest performances in the history of cinema for, for me. Like, did this guy get recognition? Oh, we won an Oscar. He, he won the Oscar. Yes. And I'd never heard of, I mean, I've heard of Van Heflin, obviously, but I'd never heard of this film. And it's just, I just love that, that aspect of, of what you do, because, uh, you know, for some people, I guess this is, this is a very obvious, familiar film, but for a lot of folks, it's, it's a total discovery. And that, I just love that in for particular uh, about what you do on TCM and the, and the way you present these and in, in such an informed in, in a way we, we can just tell what a fan you are. It's, it's not like a, like you say, this scholarly approach, you have that aspect, you have that knowledge, but you've got the love of it and the emotion and the enthusiasm that, that, that us just average moviegoers have. And that that's really, special, I, I really, I really appreciate your saying that Martin, because that honestly, that enthusiasm is the key to everything. Yeah. Because um, e even back when I was originally doing the first book, I had a, a little catchphrase that I used, which is it's better to be accessible than definitive. Because I because I found that a lot of people who wrote about art in whatever it would be, they come at it with the attitude of my point here in writing all this is to show you how much I have learned about <laughs> what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And and I felt like, wouldn't it be better if the attitude was I want to share my enthusiasm in the hope that you will enjoy this as much as I do? And, and that has always been my approach to all of this. And I think it is the key, if I can say, the key to my success, the key to the, you know, the fact that I'm still doing this and that TCM asked me to be a host and all this mm. is, is because, um, you know, you, you want to be like a lightning rod for the, for the exact reason you just described, you know, like people don't know about Johnny Eager. They don't know about... So, and and another thing I learned very early on as a film programmer, and I, I want to thank a woman who sort of was my mentor in that regard. Her name is Anita Manga, and she was the programmer at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. And Anita taught me that all of this stuff goes in cycles. And a lot of film programmers, they're programming in competition with other film programmers. Hmm. Like, I found this and I showed this and nobody else has shown this and blah, blah, blah. And Anita taught me not to be afraid to show movies that are known, but make them special because it, it's always cycling, right? Yeah. If I show a movie I showed 10 years ago, I'm never going to say, ah, I've already shown that movie. I can't show that again because if it was good and if I sold it right, then I'm going to get people that saw it 10 years ago to bring people who haven't yet seen it. And that's the name of the game is to keep 
may, turning other people into versions of me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that want to share their enthusiasm and say, oh, I saw this movie. It's so great. You have to come and see it. So, you know, I'm planning festivals, live film festivals right now. Thank you know, because we're coming out of COVID. Thank, thank goodness. God. Yeah. And and I'm using that principle like, well, I showed this movie five or six years ago, but the audience really loved it. So I'm counting on there being people who saw it five or six years ago who will come back and bring people who haven't seen it. And then that's that's how you create a new generation of classic film fans, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's always there's always, you know. Anytime there's something like, you know, the opportunity to, what you know, whatever, see Sunset Boulevard on a big screen. Or, are you kidding? I've, I can recite every line of dialogue from the film, basically, but I'll go see it again. It's just like if I stumble upon films like that, All About Eve or any, you know, TCM classics, and it's one of those, oh, I'll just drop in on this for five minutes. And then two hours later, it's like, well, I watched it again for the 3000th time, and it's it's just as good as it ever was i mean well, it's, that it's, is the it's, that is the mark of a great film right yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you you can't just watch five minutes of it <laughs> yeah 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 let's just jump into a couple parts of your book certain things are so revelatory and and again so obvious to you but it's something like on the order james and kane wrote the books double indemnity uh, double indemnity and the postman always rings twice that those films were based on it's like suddenly i it's just like jesus i guess i didn't quite realize that that's and lots more yeah and lots <laughs> more but, but what's it, what's interesting about that martin is that the the postman always rings twice was was written sort of as an act of desperation it was the first <laughs> it was the first one but he had failed as a screenwriter in Hollywood and he, he had kind of run out of ideas. And so he wrote that book, which is a very short, it's a novella, really. It's not a full blown novel. Uh, in 1934 as, as sort of a last ditch effort to get published. And, and then it ended up being this sensational thing and, and double indemnity was, you know, was clearly a follow-up that was similar in many ways. Uh, but, you know, and, and then Hollywood could not make movies out of those books in the 1930s because they were just a little too hot, a little too difficult. So that that's really why um, the movie Double Indemnity appeared before the Hollywood version of The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm. But the books were written in the in the other order. Uh, but it was that it was the movie version of Double Indemnity that I claim really uh, popularized the whole notion of film noir. They didn't call it that, of course, at the time, but that was um, that was the movie, and it came out in very late 1943. Um, that was the film that that did it that that started the movement in Hollywood. And how did these films eventually get made? I mean, when you still look at the subject matter, you think, wow, how did they how did they get past the production code? This stuff is very it's very racy, there's adultery, there's murder. I mean, wow, like how, how <laughs> I think I, I I honestly think that battle against the production code was gave creative adrenaline to the filmmakers. They, I, I think they enjoyed it. 
Mm-hmm. Like we're we're going to do this and we're going to get this on screen and we're going to figure out how to do it despite the production code. <laughs> that was certainly Billy Wilder's attitude about things. He he kind of relished the challenge of going up against the prudes and seeing what he could get on get away with on screen. And uh, I I cannot really overstate the importance of the production code to this whole film noir movement in Hollywood. And I that that's how I describe it. I call it a movement because there there was no economic reason for this to happen in Hollywood. The artists really drove this movement. And then when the audiences responded because they were seeing something they hadn't seen before or they were seeing the story told in a more creative and exciting and adult way, they responded. You know, uh, none of these films were gigantic amazing hits you you know it's amazing to think of what the popular movies were back then like in 1946 the year that the postman always rings twice and gilda two mm. two like touchstones yeah. of american cinema and, and certainly of film noir the year those two movies came out the most popular film in america was disney's song of the south Right. Which which is a film that you cannot even show today. It is so blatantly racist, and wow. and it's like this is incredible, right? That that was the most popular movie of the year, or the or the year that um, um, Double Indemnity came out. Uh, Going my way, the the Bing mm-hmm. Crosby movie. Bing Crosby was the most popular movie performer in America for most of the nineteen forties. People don't remember this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? uh, I, I just find that really fascinating. So, so noir was a little bit ahead of the curve. It was sort of predicting the way the culture was going, like a loss of innocence and a, and a move to more mature, difficult subject matter. And and that's why I call it a movement because uh, all the studios picked it picked it up. They all started making these films, eight mm-hmm. to ten of them a year. They weren't expensive to produce because they were challenging and different. The actors wanted to make them to, to change their image. Like when Tyrone power made nightmare alley at Fox in 1947, it was like a total change for him. Or, or when Richard Widmark suddenly showed up in the movies, he was something that nobody had seen before. His, his kind of psychotic villainy was, Mm. was totally fresh. So and and it just appealed to the artists, and that's why it it happened. It was a movement. It ended in the fifties, really, and and then its influence continued to seep into the culture forever. Really, it's still happening today. And when did and who coined the term film noir? Is there one person that, that and we we because we didn't call these film? Oh, there's the the, the new film noir or double indemnity. That term was not used. At the time, when when did that term become popular, and where did it come from? Um, I think a lot of it. it well, it's French, obviously, yes. for black black well, film. Black film. But, um, it it was used amongst filmmakers in France, but it was popularized at the end of the Second World War because uh, American movies had been embargoed during the Nazi occupation, and so at the end of the war, and the, the French are the most movie crazy people on earth they they leave america in the shade when it comes to loving their movies and uh there was a cinema in paris that it, to celebrate the end of the occupation 
they brought in all of these American movies that hadn't been seen for the last four years, you know, or more. And, um, and that's when the critics noticed the change in Hollywood movies, that they had gotten darker and, and they were just different. A lot of them just felt different. And, and then they started attaching the term film noir. It's a, it's a film noir, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, they would just, you know, that's when they saw, the woman in the window and phantom lady and murder my sweet and Laura and this gun for hire. They, they all had a new dark tone to them and that that's how the name got applied. You write in your book about the most talented woman in town, the incredible Ida Lupino, uh, more on, on this, this genius, on camera and, and behind camera, the, the the only film noir directed by a woman was done by her, right? Correct. The Hitchhiker it was, yeah. it has no women in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And, and it's a great film about aberrant male psychology made hmm. by a woman. And it was really her her baby. It wasn't just that she directed it. I mean, she conceived of it and did all the research because it's based on a true story. Um, yeah, Ida is just fascinating. And it's very interesting to me that she had, in my lifetime, I sort of knew who she was from seeing her when she was much older and kind of cheesy horror movies in the seventies. And, uh, I saw her play Steve McQueen's mother and junior Bonner for Mm. Sam Peckinpah, but I didn't know anything about her early life, you know? And then when I, uh, when I finally saw Roadhouse, a film noir she made in 1947, it was like, my gosh, who is this? You know, because uh, she was just fabulous. And then when you study her, it's extraordinary. And and when I when the first edition of this book came out, she wasn't the icon that she is now. And so I've actually redid parts of the book to give her even more uh <laughs> emphasis on her rightful place is like the most talented woman in town. Cause she did everything. She could write, produce, direct, tremendous actress. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and now she's like a beacon for, for, uh, younger aspiring filmmakers, men and women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was familiar a little bit with with the work of John Garfield, of course, because of the postman always rings twice, but because of your your work and uh, showing other films by him, what what a genius and and what just what a what a tragic life, man! It's just like I, I it's just it's just criminal what what happened to to that man, and but but the work that he gave us is is so stunning, and you can just you know, having as a kid, oh, Robert De Niro's so cool. Oh, God, Brando. Oh, yeah, him. Oh, and Montgomery Clip. Oh, and James. And there's like, oh, there's some other guy. Like, who's this? There's the first Gar- one. Yeah, there's the first one. <laughs> a few, a few thoughts about Mr. Garfield and the, this man's genius work well, I, on I, film. I, it's funny. You said that he had a tragic life. I would, I would modify that to say he had a tragic death because yeah. the, life, the life was pretty good. The life it, wasn't too bad. Yeah, that's true. No, that's, but it, but it right. ended at 39 years of age, which, 39. Is, which is tragic. God. Uh, yes. And the thing that made Garfield so important in my estimation is that 
the the theater scene in New York in the 1930s was extraordinary. It was, you know, the the uh, the fervent years, as Harold Clurman called mm-hmm. them, and uh, Garfield was the guy who sort of led the the bandwagon from the New York stage to Hollywood and brought writers and other actors, obviously, and writers and producers uh, in his wake. And so he really had a lot to do with changing uh, the approach to things in Hollywood. And he, he was a natural, he sort of changed film acting from a very uh, oddly enough, a stagey, thing like you 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 watch performances let's say by Paul Muni from the 1930s and that's a very theatrical stylized form of acting that that hasn't aged well uh-huh. <laughs> but then Garfield Garfield showed up and he was like a kid right off the street you know and and he just felt natural and the audience loved him and and empathized with him completely and then, of course, he uh, he got into trouble with the House Un-American Activities Committee, not because he was a communist. He had never been a communist at any point. But he obviously coming from the arts, you you have a lot of people who swing to the left, you know, mm. and and he knew a lot of these people. And because he had the highest profile, they picked on him mm. like, you know they always say right you don't if you want to kill the dog you don't cut off the tail you cut off the head and then so they went after garfield right and he had a bum ticker that just couldn't take the strain after a while and uh and he was dead at 39 mm-hmm. and, and he was also interesting because at a certain point he used his like a lot of actors do now but back at the time it was it was not a thing he used his popularity to start his own production company and he wanted the power to make the movies that he wanted to make. So uh, body and soul and force of evil and stuff like this were important noir films that he, he was the producer of them as well as the star. I'm a big fan of, of, of still of, of, of print newspapers. I guess that makes me really out of date and old school, and, and I just don't <laughs> care at all. And I love the – there are quite a few newspaper-oriented noirs. What, what are a couple of your favorites? You, you've screened some of these. There's, there's so much fun. I love them. Well, yes, I have a soft spot for these films. <laughs> uh, I mean, my all-time favorite is Deadline USA, which is not technically a film noir, really. But, you know, I get a – there, there's a lot of mileage to be gained out of debating what is and isn't film noir. Because yeah, this yeah. Is, I opened Pandora's box with that, Martin, because <laughs> yes. now I get emails every single day from people I don't even know. <laughs> Quick, tell me, film noir or not, you got to settle a bet with my wife, you know. Uh, but Deadline USA is is my favorite. And then I guess Sweet Smell of Success, you could definitely consider to be a newspaper noir and uh yeah there's lots of them in fact we just uh my film noir foundation just um restored a film that we haven't even premiered yet called the argyle secrets mm. uh that's a b film from 1948 that it, that is also a newspaper noir it's about a uh you know ambitious newspaper man who gets a lead on a on a book that contains the names of of us business people and politicians who collaborated with the Nazis during the war. Wow. 
Wow. So so he's uh, he's after this book, and it's a it's a strange, odd B movie, but it had such uh, interesting historical cachet for me that it was like we, we've got to save this movie. So mm. so we did. Ah, I love it. A couple more quick questions. Uh, uh, yeah, talking about French uh, uh, films and the, the 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 devotion that that people in France have for cinema. In uh, Jean Luc Godard's *Breathless*, his first full length film, it's dedicated to Monogram Pictures, and and, and that's one of these so called poverty. Rose Studios, correct? correct. Did, did yeah. they make any, any noirs? Have you shown any work by Monogram? Uh, oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. In fact, we've we've recently saved a couple of pictures that were Monogram movies. Uh, the Guilty and and High Tide, which will nice. be coming out on Blu-ray, beautiful. Uh, in in next year, were were Monogram pictures, and uh, I love the fact that Godard did that because it he was. Um, and I think a lot of people thought that was a cheeky thing to do. Like he was being funny or something like, how could this French intellectual dedicate his film to, you know, movies made by the King brothers and stuff like that. And I, and I just think he, he appreciated the resourcefulness that those filmmakers had in Hollywood and how they were able to do exciting things without a budget, which is exactly what he was doing. Right. So I can, I totally see how he took them as inspiration. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. I mean, in some, and you show, I mean, like a film, one of my favorites detour was made with a very low budget. And I, I just don't see how that film, you know, if you had this lavish budget for that film, it probably, they probably would have ruined it. You know, I completely agree that right. the, 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 the poverty of that movie is part of its appeal. Yeah. Like how how cheap and seedy the whole thing feels, and how it's like. How did they make this? This doesn't even look like a film that was made by Hollywood. It's just, right. yeah, it, it's so marginal and strange. That's a huge part of its appeal. That was that was not monogram. That was PRC, right. Producers Releasing Corporation, or as they like to call it, pretty rotten crap. that's how they that's how they referred to it within the business within the business (laughs) let's close out uh with your thoughts about another actress who i've just discovered so much more about through your work gloria graham and and Mm -hmm. i love when you had the, the dana delaney on recently who wrote this major piece about gloria graham's work for noir city Yes, that uh, I've always loved Gloria, but this was a wonderful new chapter because uh, because I also had the pleasure of interviewing Annette Benning when Annette Benning played Gloria Graham in a film that came out a, a couple of years ago called Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Right. And, and Annette gave a really great performance in the film. But then it was so wonderful to learn that Dana was such a fan of Gloria's and you know, we asked her to write an essay for the magazine that we published through the Film Noir Foundation. And honestly, I did not, I expected, you know, it would be a celebrity written piece, you know. Uh, Next way of saying a puff piece by someone who's a bit of a fan, but doesn't. Yeah. And then the article would end up being more about her than it would be about Gloria Graham. Mm -hmm. But then I read the piece and it was exceptional. It was extraordinarily good. 
and very insightful and extremely well-written. And so then it was like, oh, Dana, you got to come on the show with me and talk about Gloria Graham. And uh, it, it's been a revelation. I just had dinner last night with a friend of mine who's a, a fairly well-known uh, comic book uh, writer and illustrator. And he said he had just read the story and he said, my God, that was fantastic. Yeah. You know, it, it same, same experience I had. Uh, and, and that uh, because of Dana's piece and her appearing on the show, that uh, hard copy issue of our magazine, that was the best selling one ever. So good for her. Uh, thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for January 2022. Our interview was with Eddie Muller, host of Turner Classic Movies Noir Alley, about his book, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, the new revised and expanded edition. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Mm-hmm.